And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're talking about Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Yes, this is your second read, Maggie. So what were your impressions this time around? You know, I actually got way more out of this book on a second read than I did on the first time. I liked the book the first time and like I I thought it was interesting and had a lot to say, which is why I recommended we read it on the podcast. But like, I don't think... I was really potentially picking up some of what was going down until I revisited it the second time, um, which doesn't always happen for me on rereads. So I was like really, really pleasantly surprised. What were your initial impressions? Um, I don't think that we read a lot of like classic literature on this podcast, right? And so this book felt strange to me because it is so clearly like literary fiction yeah and it reminded me a lot of as i lay dying for some reason which is a book maggie and i read together in in undergrad i still don't know why it just like had a very similar tone to me i don't know it was mentioned two or three times in the book i think that was intentional yeah i had no idea i didn't pick up on the fact that it was mentioned at all okay Um, yeah, but it was a good book and I liked it. It felt really timeless too, which was another thing. Like I didn't know initially because I didn't read anything. I didn't read the back cover or anything of this book before starting it. I was just like, Maggie brought us a book. And I like thought that it could be a little bit about Katrina, but like I wasn't entirely sure. And so it was strange to me like placing this book in a historical context because it felt so very old timey. I don't yeah. know. We'll dig into that later. <laughs> yeah, no, it is it is true. It's definitely written, I mean, A in a very much like a lit fit fashion, right? Like if this is like fiction with a capital F, I think. Um, but then you're right, like it does have this very Faulkner-esque feeling to it in that, you know, the timeline is played with, especially in the first couple of chapters a little bit, you know, we're jumping around not for perspectives necessarily, but definitely in timings of things, kind of paragraph to paragraph at some points. And there feels, there's, this is a book where there's plot, but like very little of it. I would say there's two really major events that happen in it. There's a dogfight that happens and then there's like Hurricane Katrina, but it's a really like quiet introspective book as our main character, Ash, is just kind of trying to like, come to terms with her family, I would say, and also the fact that she's pregnant. And she is living in a world where she's just actively surrounded by men all the time. She's got all brothers. She's got her father. She's got her brother's friends in multiple different contexts. But her mother died, and so she's reflecting on her relationship with her and with the rest of the world after she discovers that she's pregnant. And I think to me, that sort of stream of consciousness aspect of it too really also feels very Faulkner-esque to me. Yeah. Yeah. This book is interesting too, because as you mentioned, she is surrounded entirely by men and there are 
three, if we if we're counting China, the dog who opens the book and who ends the book um, in some fashion, there are three other female characters and not all of them have speaking parts. So that was also an interesting take and like trying to read this from a feminist perspective. I'm I'm curious to see what we do with that or or how that plays out cuz I I think we'll we'll need to talk through it. <laughs> see, that was something that I think I was interested in that first go around because like I didn't know how I felt but personally for me on the second go around I think that my thoughts ended up really differing so Harmony was joking with me earlier because I was saying how like I I I had a decent amount to say about this book but it was sort of on one main theme and she was like oh motherhood and it's funny because that is like the theme that jumps out right like Ash has just discovered she's pregnant. China has just become a mother. Like this whole thing centers around motherhood. And I think that's true to a certain extent. But I think what I picked up on more this time around was that Esh has thought that womanhood has meant one thing and like what it means to be a grown-up woman has meant to be one thing this whole time and it's related to motherhood but it's also related to motherhood as like a soft coddling thing I think and like appeasing the men around her uh she thinks about her mother kind of as like this peacemaker in her family you know like she quelled the waves she kept her father's alcoholism at bay or was potentially the cause of it when she died she like meshed the family together uh and Esh tries to like take that tack with Manny, the person, the boy that she was sleeping with who got her pregnant. Um, And she like tries to almost convince herself that she's in love with him and like tries to take the soft tack with him and like tries to envision them as like this family unit where she can step into her mother's role. But in actuality, this whole book is about her looking at like womanhood and motherhood as being like a powerful, dangerous, violent thing. It opens up with China, you know, this fighting pit bull who's dangerous to everyone, who's potentially dangerous to her puppies, who is like this really immense power, but then is also simultaneously a surprisingly good mother for the most part uh, for a fighting dog. Um, She is obsessed with Greek uh, Greek myths, especially Medea, who is like probably one of the most violent mother figures you could look up to, but she doesn't see her as a villainess by any means. And then at the end, we've got like Mother Nature, like this Hurricane Katrina figure kind of symbolizing, I think, like this ultimate rage, this ultimate power. So I think to me, this book ended up, yeah, being about motherhood, but more being about understanding that womanhood and like what it means to be an adult woman is or can be about harnessing like extreme rage and extreme power and kind of unleashing that on the world. That's really interesting because I definitely picked up on those themes, but I don't know. I didn't necessarily pick up as much on Esh's changing views of womanhood Like, womanhood, because I think we opened up with China, to me, always seemed placed in this danger, right? And we see it a little bit with her mother um, when her mother is dancing, particularly, um, where, like, Ash realizes that her mother is something more than just this calming uh, peacekeeper. And I think, too, that is placed 
in that way because after her mother dies, the children really have to take care of themselves and kind of are the victims of neglect a little bit, even though their father does love them. Um, you know, he's a single parent just trying to do his best. So, huh. I don't know what to think about. I guess for me, it was more about like trying to figure out where she fit in because now she is officially a woman and not very many people have placed that on her before with the exception of her brother's friends who from a very young age have come to her for sex. And I think too, you said something that was really interesting that I want to hear more about this idea that she's trying to convince herself that she's in love with Manny because it's documented that she has a crush on him at the very least. Right. And she has had a crush on him and sex with him for her is different, even though he's still an asshole because she actually wants it. And I don't know, maybe we can talk a little bit about how sexuality plays a role in this book because I had a hard time digesting that as well yeah yeah yeah. i think for me it just felt like a a building to some of those things because like the scene that happens with her mother and that realization with the dancing i just checked actually happens like a third of the way through the book um so like it's a slow build it's a slow change and some of the greek myths she's talking about at the very beginning are you know she's thinking about aphrodite for a second she's thinking about persephone she's thinking about hera who are all like really powerful women and I think definitely violent in their own right because they're Greek goddesses and that's like akin to it. But there's something about Medea to me, like that fixation at the end that is so like Medea is the villain in every story, right? Like she, she murders. Wow. Well, and you story who is the Medea myth that's being referenced here. Yeah. Uh, she's the villain, right? Like she, she's, the, she's scorned and then she murders Jason's sons and it's all like a thing, but it's all about how it ends up affecting Jason for the most part, rather than looking at Medea and being like, wow, Jason was a fucking prick. Like, that was a fucked up thing to do. Um, So I think for me, like I said, on the second round, I think that's why I picked it up more, was I was able to, like, map that and be like, oh, you know, like, this is a slower progression than I thought, than I remembered, of, like, this changing ideology. And I think, too, you're right, I probably did overstate her feelings for Manny. I was just kind of, like, using a phrase. But there is this moment where she's, like, she pictures, I think she pictures Manny differently than he actually is a lot of the time. Um, And I think that that goes back to that idea of, like, girlhood crush a little bit. Like, I, it's like this idealization, right? And and he doesn't react the way she wants him to or how she anticipates he will when she tells him that she's pregnant. And it's all kind of like, I think it's a, a little bit of like a reality wake up call for her, but not necessarily in a way of like, oh, I can't do this or whatever. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, that didn't go the way I thought it would. And so now I have to plot a different course. And it's interesting too, because she says sex with Manny is different, but then you look at the scenes where they do have, you know, like intercourse and you can really tell from the way they're described that he's actually treating her exactly the way all of the other boys have treated her. And I think that there is a level of like, 
I don't know, like convincing oneself. And it's probably not conscious, right? It's subconscious. That's what happens a lot of the time when you have a crush. But like, oh, it's different. Oh, it feels better. I think the most important part here is the fact that this was something she actively wanted versus just kind of like acquiescing to, which was what had been happening before. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about that acquiescing too. Was sex with the other boys consensual? Like what... What do we think about that? And she has talked in the beginning a little bit about it being kind of empowering, right? Or that's in particular why Manny is different, because she actually has an interest in him. And I don't know. I just didn't know what to make of that. I thought I I was thinking about that a lot, too. And, you know, I don't think I know what to make of it either, because on the one hand... There's part of me that feels like, especially given the age difference that we know is between Esh and the people that she's, you know, uh, having a a relationship of some sort with, um, which I don't think any of them are over 18 at the time. They're all still in school, I think, at least because her oldest brother is in school. And Manny is 17. Um, But... There, but like there is a little bit of an age difference, which automatically is like a flag to me to be like, does she really understand what she's consenting to? Can she consent? I think that there is a level of like gray area here, as I think there can be for a lot of women in situations like this of like, I'm not particularly interested in this, but I'm also not not interested enough to say no like I'm just going to kind of go with the flow here um I think for her the moment of real choice comes with the fact that like there is a point for months where she decides that she only wants to have sex with Manny she's not gonna Mm -hmm. just kind of go with the flow anymore she's just gonna be with Manny because that's what she wants to do and to me I feel like that feels like the most purposeful choice but I I Yeah, I agree. I don't know what to make of it. I don't necessarily know it's enough to be like it was unconsensual, but I also don't necessarily know that it's enough to be like it was explicitly consensual. Like it feels like it exists in a weird gray area of just like general coercion, I guess, that women all across the country face when, especially as teenagers, I think girls across the country face when being presented with the option of of sex with a, a cis man who really is interested in you and kind of just being like, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. Part of the reason I asked that, because the only, we see, I think, three sex scenes, sort of. I don't know if, I don't remember if the first time is depicted graphically when she is 12. But she kind of describes it a little bit and is like, I just didn't say no. It just yeah. felt too hard to say no. So I let him do it. But, like, when we see it with Manny, which we know is consensual from her part, at least that's what she tells us, like, it feels like he's just grabbing her and stuff. He just kind of forces it on her still. And she doesn't fight back. She never says no. And we see that she wants it. But, like, that's, that's part of why that got to me. Because he really only comes to her for sex. And when he does, he's just, like, doing it. He's like, I'm doing this to you now. And there's no preamble. No, and I think, too, the thing that, like, makes me feel saddest about that situation, even though from what she tells us it is consensual, is, like, A, I think, like you were pointing to, and as I said before, 
the way Manny treats her is the way all of the others treated her before. But B, even though she wants him, he's not fulfilling her needs. Like, he's just giving her scraps. I don't think that any of the sex scenes in this book are particularly explicit, but I think that the most... The one that got me the most was, I think, the first time we see her and Manny have sex um, because she's like so into it. Right. Like she talks about her body like heating up and like how she just wants him to fucking kiss her or like the places that he wants that she wants him to touch her. And he's just like giving her the scraps and she's trying to like make that live up to her crush, which doesn't necessarily mean not consensual, but makes him a really shitty partner on all fronts. And she's just going with the flow on that front, right? Like she's not standing up for what she wants out of that. And the moment she does try for the first time is ultimately when she does tell him that she's pregnant and like is trying, I think, to get him to understand what's happening here. Uh, And he's just like, yeah, no, I don't want any of this. And I think you're a slut and you can't prove that it's mine and like, blah, 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 blah. Um, And like, that was a really hard pill to swallow on top of the scenes where like things clearly weren't you know, as explicitly consensual. Um, And just seeing from like the objective reader standpoint, like this, this isn't what she thinks it is essentially or what she wants it to be maybe. Okay. So along those lines, I want to unpack now big Henry, who is the only one of the friends that has not ever like tried to have sex with her. Is that true? Yeah. But it also sounds like he's also might have, like, a crush on her? I don't know? Question mark? Oh, no, you're right. Manny tries to imply that they have, that she's had sex with him, but it's it's not true. Oh, yeah. Is that towards the end when he says, talk to Big Henry? Okay, so I was confused about that, too, because I think that, like, there are several indications that Big Henry, like, might have a crush on her, even though he's never solicited her for sex. Um, and for me, that was when Manny was like, go go to Big Henry with that. Go to Big Henry and tell him that you have a baby. And then the second... But it was, it was never explicit. Like, he also is always looking out for her. And that's implied several times. And at towards the very end, um, he hears that she is pregnant and he's like... I'm the dad. Like, that That baby has a father. I'm one of him. Them. But then he also says that that baby has lots of fathers, which to me implies that, you know, her brothers and her dad are also going to be there for her and be there in the baby's life. So I don't know. How do you feel about the relationship with Big Henry? Is that coded romantically? Do we like that it's not explicit if it is coded romantically? Is it just that he's like a decent guy who cares about her and that doesn't have to be romantic? I read it as the second one. I think especially after that scene at the end where he like essentially throws himself in explicitly with her brothers as like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to be one of many and you're not alone and we all care about you. I kind of For me, Big Henry was like a really important part of this book because it showed that she could have like positive relationships with men who weren't soliciting her for sex that weren't her brothers, essentially, which feels like such a low bar. But Big Henry is just like a good, decent man 
all the way up and down this book. Like he's there to help. He offers supplies. He goes on runs with them. But he's also equally, he's also not like a huge character in the book. And oftentimes for Esh specifically, he's on the periphery and he's grouped in with her brothers. So I think that you could be right. And maybe it was supposed to be coded romantically, but I personally read it more as just like, Big Henry is just kind of like part of the family, you know, like he's dependable, he's reliable. And I think maybe at the end, you're supposed to get hints of something more like potentially on the horizon, because I mean, he does offer himself up solely first as being like, you know, like, I'll be this baby's father, we all will be. Um, But for the most part, I read him a little bit more as just kind of like part of the family. He's just kind of like peripherally in the background with her brothers a lot of the time. Okay, so let's explore that a little bit more because I just read this book for those listening. So this is all very fresh. But towards the end, when Randall and Manny have it out, for context, there is a fight between Skeeta and Manny, in part because Skeeta realizes that Manny has broken his sister's heart. And uh, Randall, who is Manny's friend, confronts Manny about it and says, Manny talks about being like Randall's brother. And Randall says, we're not actually blood. Um, And like, it's not enough if it's just me. Like, you don't care about Skeeta. You don't care about Ash. Skeeta thinks you're fucking with Ash. And that, to me really parallels what you're saying about the Big Henry thing, because Big Henry is in it. He's a part of the family, even though he's not there by blood. And that also is really important to me because towards the end, especially towards the beginning, we don't see it as much, but towards the end, especially we really see how the men in her life step up and do care about her. Um, And I don't think Ash is entirely certain that they would in the beginning, but towards the end, we, we see like they never once call her a slut um, her father has a moment uh, of like slight shame, I would say, probably about the baby. But for the most part, people are just kind of accepting and they're like, this is what it is. And they fight for their sister. And they also like do that without belittling her at all. Right. Like she's not being fought for because she's too weak to protect herself. She's being fought for because they care about her and they believe that she can protect herself at the same time. I don't know. Do you see those connections? <laughs> I do. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that in that way, Big Henry is totally the antithesis of, Hen- of Manny, even if it's not necessarily like in a romantic way. But you're right. Like he cares about everyone equally. He even cares about their father who like mm-hmm. is at the very least going through it, capital letters in this book, you know, like he and he, I think is often trying his best, but he makes, I think, some potentially questionable parenting choices as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you're you're right also that like at the end of it like he does accept like okay you know like this is just what's happening and we'll be here for you I think there's something interesting that you mentioned is like I think that besides Skeeta and I mean maybe the youngest Junior besides Junior who was in some ways like too young for this like Randall and their father specifically I think have for a while like a specific thought about what and who Esh should be because she was a woman and they want her to really be like the mother. Um, like uh, the the dad character, especially like Ash is the one he goes to when he's sick, right? Like she's the yeah. one who's taking care of him. She's expected to like take care of Junior, especially. And like, I think that he really has like a sense of 
who and what women should be. And it's also something he says that I think for me was like the dam and the breaking point of the fact for Ash that like what she's been taught about womanhood isn't necessarily healthy or right. Like on page 124, they're talking about Katrina, right? Like she's coming, uh, the storm. And he says... The storm it has a name now, like the worst she's a woman, Katrina. There's another storm, Randall says. What you think I've been talking about? I knew it was coming, Daddy says. Like the worst, I repeat, a woman. That for me is like this breaking point. It's pretty much right smack dab in the middle of the book where Esh is just like, fuck that, right? Like all of the women in this book are like the women figures in this book whenever they break out of this mold of just like essentially just like docile acquiescence, they get villainized. And that's true with China too, from the beginning. And the only person who doesn't see it in their mother in China and in Ash is Skeeta. And he sees their power and he advocates for their power all the time. Like maybe not all the time, but a lot like it's his words too. When Ash is like facing the storm at the end and facing Manny that he remembers, like, make them see, make them see your power. And he was talking to China at the time, but, like, that's what resonates with her. And I think that some of this, like, changed thought for both Esh and how Esh's family sees her occasionally starts with, like, Skeeta's really intense relationship with China and seeing her as, like, this both dangerous and powerful beast, but also one that he loves deeply and has an intense connection with um yeah okay so there's a lot that you said there that i want to unpack so like i don't remember the 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 beginning of the book as well because i read like the second half today um (laughs) but it struck me how much randall has also stepped into the motherhood role in some ways even more than ash i think as the oldest sibling he's the one that's constantly with junior even from the beginning and he's the one that like you know takes up he took up it was ash and randall who fed junior and it was ash and randall who did all the laundry and when ash isn't doing the cooking it's always randall doing the cooking and I thought that was really interesting too. So I'm not sure, I don't, I'm not sure if I remember him like having a certain idea of who Ash should be. I think he was just kind of like maybe oblivious to her and like did not really think of her as a girl or a woman for a while. And then the thing about Skeeta and the thing about the dad talking about, uh, you know, being a woman. So I have mixed feelings about. Skeeta's, like, Skeeta's response to womanhood. Because Ash really sees him and his relationship with his dog, China, as kind of a model of what love should look like. And in a lot of ways, it is. But the one time China acts out and, like, is not submissive to Skeeta, Skeeta really punishes her. And he also has this moment where he's just calling her his bitch, which feels really potent. Because, I mean, yes, she is technically his bitch, right? She's she's his dog. But also they do have like a master submissive relationship. 
And the moment that she acts out against that, like, he's lost his way. He is committed to her, but also, like, he's committed to her because she's so good at being his and his alone, which I find really interesting. I also think, though, that your point about, like, Skeeta being the one that appreciates Ash's power is true, too. And I think that's important because Ash and Skeeta are the closest in age, and we see their relationship grow throughout this book. They were really close, but then they became less close once Ash essentially started fucking around and once Skeeta, uh, you know, became obsessive about dogs. And throughout this book, they grow closer. And there's a moment in the very end or close to the very end when Katrina is going on Um where Skeeta sacrifices China for Ash. And then in response, Ash holds him. And she says she holds him just like she would a lover. And to me, that kind of parallels this big Henry relationship, right? Like she's giving all of that love that she was giving to all of these other boys and giving herself to somebody who is actually her partner, who is her brother, yes. And so it's not romantic and weird, but like they that that is her true partner, right? Because he's the closest person to age. He's the person that she grew up with. Yeah. Yeah, that's all really interesting. I think the thing for me that like complicates what you just said is is twofold. The first is that at the back of my book, there's an interview with Jessamine Ward, and they talk about like the inspiration for like this dog fighting line. And she mm-hmm. talks about the fact that when she was growing up her brother fought pit bulls and her father. And like, it was just kind of a thing that happened in this area that she grew up in. And what she wanted to focus on was like the beautiful aspects of their relationship and how after her brother died, the dog was like this living link to him and things like that. So I think that that probably knowing that going into this, I think blinded me a little bit to like some of the more problematic aspects of it, because like that was what was going on in the back of my head. But Mm -hmm. I do think too, there is this sense of like, you're right. When China does act out, right, like there is this really intense master, you know, like servant sort of moment. But I don't think that in that sense, Esh and China are like parallels one to one because China, like, uh, he never, no one really has that moment with Esh, like, even when she does misbehave. And I think, too, there's like this complication with China because. He admires her power so much. He loves her for that power, but he also recognizes the fact that it's dangerous and something that needs to be trained and needs to be harnessed, which like, especially with fighting dogs is an objectively true thing <laughs> because they they will, you know, kill you or others <laughs> uh, if they aren't well-trained like that. So like, I think that there's a lot to the symbolism you said there that I like wasn't thinking about. I think there's also a practical element of it that like does complicate things a little bit. And I think that there's also, I would be more worried about it personally if China and Ash felt more one-to-one, which occasionally yeah. they do, but I think not with this specific dynamic. No, I agree. I just thought it was interesting because, I don't know, Skeeta seems like he's the real feminist icon in this book in a lot of ways. I mean, not maybe not a feminist icon, but he's like the one putting words to a lot of this. And he's the only one really putting words to all of this because, I mean, 
Esh really only speaks through her mythologies and like that is how she alludes to feminism, but she doesn't really have the language to like empower herself quite yet. Um, but he still, I don't know. He still hasn't talked to Esh about like knowing what she's doing with these other guys for a while. He still kind of lets it build some distance in between them. And that line about the bitch, which I think, to be fair, also is then, I wish, maybe I should find this quote. <laughs> to be fair, I think that he also then goes on to talk about how powerful women are to Manny. And he, like, is particularly alluding to Ash. But the idea of that, like, line about the bitch, really, it just struck, it just, it just stuck out to me. And he goes on to call Manny's girlfriend his bitch as well. So I think that like all of these male characters, maybe with the exception of Junior, just because he's an actual child and maybe too young to like really. Yeah, he's like eight. <laughs> yeah, really too young to do anything harmful. But I think all the male characters are dealing with sexism in the same way. Like they're dealing, they're dealing with this problematic idea of womanhood, maybe. And in the end, they get a chance to kind of like face that. And maybe this book is powerful because they can have those problematic ideals about womanhood and face them and still have love for the one woman in their life. I think so. And I think for me, what struck most was just the fact that like, Esh feels like to me, she finds her power. Like she finds a different way of womanhood than what the people she's surrounded by thinks should be happening. And the yeah. bitch thing too, I think is really powerful because you're right. When, when Skeeta uses it to China, I think in that specific scene, like it's complicated because it's also after he thinks she's dying and he's like really emotional. And so like, there's this weird aspect of like, this is a demeaning term it's also technically an accurate term because she's she is a, a, a breeding dog and that <laughs> is the term. Um, yeah. And so, like, there's a lot going on there. But you're right. When he calls Manny's girlfriend a bitch, like, it's meant to be derogatory. And the other person who's called a bitch in this story is Esh by Manny in the scene where she tells him that she's pregnant. And what it says is it's from page 203 to 204. And so I guess I'm just going to read it. It's kind of a long scene. I'm sorry. But, it, it, but it, uh, you're you're turning my cogs now. Um, so he, so he's like insulted her, right? She's, she's decided that she's not going to take this. And so what she says is, The storm, it has a name now, like the worst, she's a woman, Katrina. There's another storm, Randall says. What you think I've been talking about? I knew it was coming, Daddy says. Like the worst, I repeat, a woman. And then the next page, she says, I'm slapping him over and over, my hands a flurry, a black blur. His face is hot and stinging as boiling water. Hey, hey, Manny yells. He blocks what he can with his elbows and forearms, but, I, but still I snake through. I slap so hard my hands hurt. I love you. Esh. The skin on his throat is red, his scar white. I loved you. I hit across his Adam's apple with a V where my thumb and pointer finger cross. He chokes. I loved you. This is Medea wielding the knife. This is Medea cutting. I rake my fingernails across his face, leave pink scratches that turn red, fill with blood. Stupid bitch, what is wrong with you? You. 
And then the fight goes on. This is where I think coming back to that conversation you pointed between Randall and Manny, like this is where you see one dream fall apart, I think, and another dream solidify because in some ways Manny was a dream, right? Like this really wasn't how she pictured it going down. And then the other dream solidifies and it's Medea and it's Medea and her bloody knife. But instead of it being villainous, it's glorious, right? Like she is avenging what was wronged from her. And he's trying to use this like stupid bitch demeaning term to make her stop, but it doesn't work. She's still fighting. And in some ways, I think there's almost this idea of like, sure, you can call me that, but that doesn't necessarily make me what I am, right? Like, even if I'm gonna, even if I'm paralleling China at this point, like, even if like, she's who I'm, who I'm channeling while I'm fighting, like, you can say what you want, but we're both bigger than these words and and more powerful than them. Um, and like, our fury and our wrath is going to rain down. Thank you for reading that. That really solidifies your idea of the changing aspect of womanhood throughout this story to me. Especially because Esh is such a passive character through most of this. And this doesn't exactly, like, this isn't exactly her setting up boundaries, right? Like, it's vengeance. That's not the same as boundaries. But to me, that force and that destruction could be what leads her to boundaries, right? And, like, it's her discovering her power, right? Because throughout most of this novel, she's been completely passive and has been letting things happen to her and hasn't made a lot of decisions, And at this point in time, she's like, she's discovering that she has the potential to do more. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, that's really interesting because one of her only moments, I think, of action actually ends up coming around while, like, Katrina is happening and the house is filling up with water. And especially their father, like, everyone is a little bit paralyzed when the attic starts filling up. And Skeeta goes first, but, like, she goes second. She's pushed by her father in that moment of, like... Ah, but like she's the one who has the little level head she has the plan she's got the action there and I think that that's really powerful too because in the face of Hurricane Katrina in the face of a category five hurricane this is the moment where everyone else feels powerless and inactionable and she has the power and she has the action and she is just as much of the hurricane as Katrina is and that felt really like wow, like there's stuff going down here. I agree. Wow. Okay, so I think you went through all my talking points. (laughs) What else do you want to talk about, Maggie? I think that that might have been all of mine too. I mean, I guess we haven't really touched on the motherhood aspect explicitly yet. Like all of this is started because Ash finds out she's pregnant. But I think something interesting that separates this to me from other motherhood narratives that we've encountered is like Ash, like doesn't actually think a lot about the baby. She thinks about her her changing body specifically a lot, mostly because she's worried about other people finding out. They do anyways. We've already discussed the fact that it goes, right? But like, she doesn't necessarily sit there and like fret, like what kind of mother am am I going to be? Or like, I'm not prepared for this, or I am prepared for this. Or I think like a lot of traditional narratives, she doesn't even really talk about like having that much of a connection with the baby. Like, yeah, this is a novel about motherhood, but I, I think to me, it more feels... Like, the pregnancy almost feels like a catalyst for just, like, growth into womanhood than it being a novel about motherhood as much. She reflects more on her own mother and her relationship with her and China and her relationship with her puppies than she does with, like, this life that's growing inside of her that she, like, considers ending for a while uh, or for a little bit at the very least, uh, decides... 
again, kind of passively, to be honest, to be just like, no, like not going to do that unsafe. But like, to me, that really struck out as being very different than other novels that tackle these same topics. Because like, Esh isn't concerned with being a mother. Esh is concerned with being a woman and a good woman and a powerful woman and like mapping that out. And it feels more like she feels just sort of like, yeah, motherhood will follow that path. Yeah, that's very interesting that you said that. I think you're completely right. It is all about her body, right? And she talks a lot about her stomach. But even towards the end, she's talking about the baby and she's like, what is it? It's like a, it's like my nail or something. Like it's not a baby yet in her head. And she does passively decide to keep it. And towards the end, we see a little bit of her imagining what the baby's going to look like. We see her deciding what she'll name it. But yeah, this story isn't about the child at all. I think for me, that was harder to read or unpack because I'm in a space where I'm like really trying to get better about gender neutrality in general, right? And because we're a feminist podcast and like motherhood now is wrapped up into womanhood so much throughout this particular story, I wasn't like quite sure how to unpack that because, you know, obviously not only women can be mothers or not only women can have. Yeah. And so I'm not really sure like how I personally feel about that but I still think that like it's a valid story that has been connected to women specifically for thousands and thousands of years and like it works for Ash so I think too an important part of this as well that we haven't really talked about is that like this is a teen pregnancy which I think to me continues to like elevate the level of which like this is sort of a story that needs to be told because I think oftentimes teen pregnancies especially for young for people who identify as as women uh they get very sensationalized I mean it's all like teen mom right and I think that there's this really dominant societal narrative that like if you have a teen pregnancy, it has to be like this dramatic, life-changing moment. You're never going to be the same. And you're either going to be like a great mother or a terrible mother, or like all of these things. And I think that this shows, I think, I don't know, just kind of like a much more neutral stance on the whole scenario. Like it's not this big, utterly life-changing moment for her, at least at this point in the book, yeah. you know, or at least at this point in her story. It's just kind of like a thing that happens and her family sort of accepts it minus one or two little blips and like, I do think in some ways it's a useful alternate narrative to like that dominant societal idea of like what this story should look like. I think potentially, especially for black teen moms. I agree. I also think though that observation plays into a little bit of an aspect and a theme that we haven't talked about yet, which is class. And like, this was what? What was Hurricane Katrina? 2003? 2005. And this book was published in 2011. Okay. So in 2005, teen pregnancy was a lot more common. <laughs> and we know that teen mm-hmm. pregnancy is unfortunately a lot more common in neighborhoods of color because we have systemic racism and there's a lot of work being done to deny people of color access to family planning methods. And this story takes place in Louisiana. And we also know that teen pregnancy is a lot more common there. And so I wonder if part of that is because, like, the cultural perception where she was was different. Like, how how many options do we think that girls in her neighborhood have for college or for their futures? And I wonder, like, if pregnancy is just another 
avenue towards adulthood. Like if it is just more accepted in that culture and where she is in that time and place. Maybe I don't really have the answers to that. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head for 2005, but I do think something that even disrupts that a little bit is like this idea that she spends a lot of time thinking about the fact that she does use condoms and she doesn't remember a time where she didn't use condoms. Yeah. And so like either clearly something broke or there was like something happening, which I think starts to push back against that a little bit. I think for me, the class thing that really plays into it is, and it's not even like a long scene, it's maybe three paragraphs, but she does think in the middle about abortion and it's not even on the table for her, right? Because she can't afford she's it. About is the other, yeah, because what she's thinking about is the other girls in school being like, this is what you do when you can't afford an abortion. Yeah. Like it's that to me, I think really plays into this class aspect of like, we do so limit family planning options and opportunities for people based on class, based on race, based on geography and things like that. And also, I mean, we never see her talk about potentially even having another option besides condoms, which like condoms were definitely the right choice because preventing STDs and she had multiple partners, regardless of how we feel about that otherwise. But, you know, like we don't talk about, she doesn't, she doesn't even think about like, oh, you know, like what if I had access to birth control and condoms and things like that. So she does mention birth control once, but I think that she says that it's too expensive or that like she can't get, she doesn't want like somebody to have to drive her there. She talks about it because uh, they they say if you swallow a whole month's worth of, of, a, of birth control pills, it'll bring on your period. Yeah. It's in that paragraph. So. Um, but yeah. Okay. So deviating a little bit. There's more that I want to talk a little bit about class here. Um, and, you know, Maggie and I were very young in 2005. I barely remember Hurricane Katrina. Like, I remember it and it was a big thing and I remember doing things in school for it. But, like, I don't really understand the political concepts behind it. I didn't research this beforehand. But I did think it was interesting that like not that she and her friends that they didn't evacuate, even though it was said to evacuate. And we know that the white farmer who lived kind of nearby did evacuate. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if, you know, I know that you've done some work with organizations that do disaster relief, Maggie, I was wondering if you had any any insight about why that might have been. Um, I actually don't. That that aspect of of that work was just something that I I never did a, a lot of of work with. I think that from the book, what I gathered was a couple of things. The first, this idea that like what I really got from that, I think especially about the vac- evacuation standpoint, and it definitely did feel related to class, but was also like the hemming and hawing of the meteorologists. And also there was a distrust of what they were saying a little bit, at least at the beginning. Like yeah. they have a conversation, I think with some friends and and the friend and the friend is like, yeah, but I mean, I don't trust journalists. And and somebody comes back being like meteorologists or scientists. And, and the consensus is that it's all bullshit, you know? Um, but even then, you know, it starts as a category one. And then I think like 25, 30 pages later, it's a category three. And then 25, 30 pages later, it's a category five. And I think that it really speaks to this idea of like being able to make snap emergency decisions like that, like evacuating requires more resources, you know, like, I think that for their family, like they didn't even think about it, because where would they have gone? They had all of their supplies right there. They'd weathered hurricanes like this right there. So I think to me, that felt really related to class. Like, I think that this idea of like speedy responses in the faces of natural disasters tend to be reserved for people who are in 
like middle class, upper middle class who are uber rich because they have time and space and money to like think about and make those decisions in a way that I think can be taken away from you um, or are much harder to decisions to make when you're working class, lower middle class, things like that. That makes sense. Another thing about class, <laughs> sorry, because it did, I feel it did feel really prevalent to me in this book. Um, yeah, I felt like that played into my sense a little bit of like the timelessness, right? Because I couldn't really place it. We eventually learned that they have a TV, and it's two thousand five, so like computers probably like I didn't have a computer in two thousand five, but it does seem. Like, they're living a really old-timey lifestyle in a way that I can't see being quite as prevalent in the North uh, if you're, like, mm-hmm. lower class. Because I was lower class in 2005, and, like, we didn't have farms and chickens and stuff. I mean, they don't have a farm, but they have a chicken, right? And they have, like, a a not very well-insulated house, it seems. Um, I don't know. It was just a weird, different cultural perspective that felt pretty foreign to me. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about that? Like how class played into the life that they were living and the pit in general? I think that to me, the class discussion in this book was one that was meant to highlight for people who don't have that experience, how different it is. Because like, I think that there's this really, there's like this idea of class consciousness now in 2021, that like everyone is very aware and is like constantly either trying to move up or not move up or like whatever, but it's all like purposeful. Mm -hmm. And I think here the class consciousness that you can get reading this book doesn't come from the characters, right? It makes you as the reader sit back and be like, oh, just by living their lives and like not thinking about class explicitly, like Esh doesn't think about class explicitly at all outside of the couple of things that we talked about. And that was all about access and and like class wasn't mentioned at, at all in those conversations. Like this was designed to make the reader class conscious because she wasn't thinking about it. Like that just was, I mean, her life. Food insecurity was a big thing, which I think. Yeah. That part of yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. But I, but I, but like there wasn't like, she wasn't sitting there as the main character being like, this is what it means to be like working class in Louisiana in 2005, you know? And I think that sometimes when we think of class consciousness, that's what we think of. Whereas in reality, like she's just concerned about going, going through her day and like making sure everyone's got enough food and like, trying to make sure that everything's available and working. And like, I think for me, that was a really purposeful choice on the part of the author that like, for people who do relate to this, it's like, oh, okay, you know, like, this probably feels authentic. I'm fairly certain that this was a story from what I read, that's like pretty close towards heart, not necessarily like biographical by any means, but you know, like pulled from some of her own experiences. Um, She experienced Katrina. But then also per- yeah, but then also purposefully designed to be like, I, I think it's it's meant to like, almost be a kind of purposeful omission, because it makes other readers be like, oh, 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 like, this is how class is playing into this, even though like, it like, it's it's almost like the purposeful omission makes it even louder, you know, of like the word class or working class or things like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. That was all of my things that I needed to unpack with you, Maggie. <laughs> Very nice, very nice. Do you think that this was a feminist book then, ultimately? So, as we've talked about, my definition of feminism is always changing. And it's hard because the world in which uh, Ash is living in 
doesn't really seem all that feminist. And a lot of our allyship, even though there are different figures like China, like Medea, that come into play and that Esh eventually finds solidarity with, the allyship is really coming all from men who are also deeply problematic in their own rights. So like that makes it hard. That makes that definition a little bit harder. But I do think that it is a feminist book because there's just so very few narratives that I've read about an experience like this. And people who live in non-feminist societies, which let's be fair, very very few of us do. Maybe we create some feminist circles and are trying to live our best feminist lives, but like the world at large is not a feminist world. You know, still deserve to have their stories told. And it is a story about womanhood, ultimately. So that feels pretty... And somebody's coming to terms with their womanhood. So that does feel pretty feminist to me. So I would say yes. That was my long-winded explanation. (laughs) Very nice. I didn't know how I was going to rate it uh, or like how I was going to feel about that aspect of it ahead of like the second reread. I felt, I think I felt, I didn't, I didn't unpack this book fully the first time I read it. And the second reread, like I mentioned, was really good for me. But I think for me, it is a yes, because I think that there's an alternative narrative of womanhood here in a couple of different ways. And I think that Esh is like on a journey to find her own power here And that's like singularly important, even if she is surrounded by men in this story. And I think too, you know, something else that we haven't talked about, but as like a a logistical timeline, right? Like this whole story takes place over like 10 days, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is a very small snapshot of her life. But the reason it's here is because like, this is the pivotal moment, I think. Like, this is why we're circling in. Like, this is her changing thought process about like womanhood and power. And to me, I think that all of that adds up to a feminist book. At least in this case. Yeah, I agree. I agree. She's pushing the boundaries of her society, which was our whole, like, working definition, I think, right? We're reading books about women who are pushing the boundaries of their society, or at least trying to. Yeah. What am I reading? Uh, I just finished a book for my YA Lit class called This Is My Brain on Love, which is good, and I highly recommend the audiobook because it's got two separate readers, and I think that's it right now. Yeah. What about you, Maggie? I am reading The Atlas Six by Olivia Blake. Very nice. Very nice. And this is our last episode of the season. This is. We'll be back with you all at the end of August. Yay! Yeah. All right. Is that it? I think that's all, folks. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love 
at frolic.media slash podcasts.